In terms of osteoarthritis, it's really about innate immune activation and the role that the innate immune system plays in driving joint symptoms and the failure of that inflammation to resolve, resulting in joint damage progression and resulting in changes in in different pain experiences over somebody's lifetime or experiences with the disease is really where the field is at right now. That's Dr. Tom Appleton. He's a rheumatologist at St. Joseph's Healthcare in London, Ontario. He's a clinician scientist and assistant professor of medicine at Western University, where his research focuses on osteoarthritis. He's our guest on Around the Room, the podcast brought to you by the Canadian Rheumatology Association. Welcome back. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined for the very first time by our newly promoted co-host, Dr. Janet Pope. How are you? Good. And Daniel, I'm happy to be promoted, and I think I'll try to keep (laughs) you in line. (laughs) Yeah, perfect. So before we get to our guest, I want to announce some of our upcoming episodes on a whole bunch of interesting topics. So keeping the list short today so that you can send us some questions, we're going to be talking in the near future on Sjogren's disease, auto-inflammatory diseases, and IgG4-related diseases. If you have questions you'd like answered by the experts, please contact us through the CRA Twitter account at CRASCRroom or by email which is info at room.ca. For our Clinical Pearls episodes, please get in touch if you have challenging cases you want to present on the podcast. We'd love to hear them. And now on with our show, with our guest, Dr. Tom Appleton. Tom, welcome to Around the Room. Dan, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, really exciting to have a newly promoted co-host, Janet. Nice to see you. (laughs) Nice to see you, Tom, like every day. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm always excited about the episodes we do, but I think perhaps the one that I I truly sincerely know the least about is osteoarthritis. So I got to say, I've there's been a little bit of buzz around my office um, because I mentioned it to my practice partner. He's really excited too because um, you have so much to teach us. And so before we get into kind of the the meat and potatoes of it, I'd be really interested to know how you actually got interested in osteoarthritis and how that became your research focus. Well, I'm really glad to hear there's excitement about this topic. (laughs) And, you know, I'm actually really proud to go around to other societies and, and interface with other specialties and talk about um, osteoarthritis from the rheumatology perspective, you know, really rheumatologists are the arthritis experts. And, you know, when it comes to all forms of arthritis, we we probably do have a lot to add here. I think we can up our game. I think we can can add more uh, than has been done historically for sure. Uh, But, you know, the analogy I like to give is where would atherosclerosis be if the cardiologists weren't involved so where would osteoarthritis be if the rheumatologists aren't involved? So that's uh, that's kind of the way I come at it. But uh, you're right, we, we certainly have more to learn. That's a great way to frame it. So you have a major research interest and you're involved in some really incredible research on, on the topic. How did you, of all the topics in rheumatology, I'm, I'm curious how you ended up uh, focusing on osteoarthritis. Well, you know, I think early exposures make a lot of difference for people. And, you know, I think we, I mean, certainly Janet has a long history of reaching out to people early on and trying to make connections with them and getting people excited about rheumatology in general. But the first people I actually ran into in the rheumatology field was in 2004, the Canadian Arthritis Network meeting. I ran into Hani El-Gabalawi and Deanne Lakai, and then shortly after that, Jillian Hawker, And, you know, talk about a group of people who are tremendously excited about what they do 
and really passionate about bringing along uh, new trainees, people who are earlier in their career. And, uh, you know, that just got me really excited about rheumatology in general. And, and so it was really through that and through my, my research interests early on that I, I realized there was this massive unmet need in rheumatology to try to make a difference for people who have literally the most common form of arthritis in the world. Uh, and yet we have the least tools to be able to help. So, so that's kind of where it stemmed from. But, uh, you know, obviously lots of things happen along the way. You meet great mentors, Janet included, of course, my PhD supervisor, Frank Beyer included, you know, the, these people kind of keep it going and keep it exciting. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a team effort, of course. And Janet, I guess, uh, it, Tom works at uh, Western University uh, where you also work. So he's a, he's a pretty big get. For any center that gets him, eh? Absolutely. And uh, everyone hands off. We want to keep him here at Western. He's doing great stuff. <laughs> and a good segue, uh, Tom, what what are you doing? Tell us about your research. Yeah, for sure. Well, fortunately, people can't see me blushing on uh, on a podcast. So um, I, I'm really pleased to be working on the, the immunology behind why joints fail and so inflammation and its role in osteoarthritis, you know, osteoarthritis is a, a, an innate inflammation disease. It's not an autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis. And we know lots about, uh, about rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis in terms of its biology. Still lots more to learn because we haven't cured any of these diseases yet, P.S. But, you know, in terms of osteoarthritis, it, it's really about innate immune activation and the role that the innate immune system plays in driving joint symptoms and the failure of that inflammation to resolve, resulting in joint damage progression and resulting in changes in, in different pain experiences over somebody's uh, lifetime or experiences with the disease. Um, is is really where the field is at right now and, and trying to identify those new targets that will be uh, hitting, I think, it is very much involving immunology. And so so that's what we're working on in uh, my lab and my clinical research program, which isn't just mine. Uh, there's quite a few people that I'm fortunate to be collaborating with. And um, one of the reasons I came uh, back to Western is is because of the, the uh, musculoskeletal experts that are uh, that are here. I think that's a, a really good setup for kind of what, what we were hoping to cover in this episode. And we're, we're lucky that um, Tom is joining us for two episodes. Really, the first one is talking about what is osteoarthritis and how do we diagnose it? And then and then we're going to get into uh, treatment. And um, so you, you kind of started to describe what is osteoarthritis. I'm wondering if you can kind of give me the a Coles Notes pathophysiology um, description of, of what how it starts and how it leads to clinical symptoms just to outline it in my head so maybe I can kind of understand some of the treatment targets down, down down the road in our next discussion if that's even possible I don't even know well it's a it's a great question and it's one that we're really trying to answer from a research perspective mm-hmm. um, but I, I think we could probably the say say the same thing about rheumatoid as well you know just what is the pathophysiology? I mean, it's hard to pack into one small, concise sentence, let alone do we even know where it comes from. But, you know, at at its roots, osteoarthritis is essentially an imbalance between the mechanical loading on joints and their ability to withstand those loads. I think the easiest thing to try to get your head around is, okay, if you have a joint injury and then that joint starts to develop arthritis, you know, pain, aching, stiffness, 
uh, on most days and, and, and dysfunction and disability as a result of that. Um, that gets a lot more difficult when you're talking about people who are much more common who have not had a major joint injury and start to develop joint dysfunction. And, and you know, I don't, I don't think we really have a clear sense of how that actually starts. So I can't really answer that per se. But what we do know is that the, the activation of your innate immune system, which is in your synovium principally, uh, there are also changes that happen in, in the bone marrow, so the subchondral area uh, underneath the articular cartilage. There, there are immunologic changes that happen there. But, you know, a lot of the research that has been done, especially in the last 10 to 15 years, has shown that inflammation in the lining of the joint, your synovium, uh, is, is where most of the, those pain signals are emanating from. Later on in disease, so later stages of disease where you have substantial joint damage, you're going to have pain coming from other sources as well. And that's probably where a lot of that subchondral uh, innervation starts to become perturbed and you get loading kind of symptoms from that. But uh, certainly early on in, in the course of disease, a lot of it seems to come from uh, synovial inflammation and that persists throughout. So so that's why a lot of, of people are really trying to target what's happening in the synovium now and intervene. Uh, but we don't know the right targets yet. So on that note, Tom, so is it really a self-limited IA and then all this secondary, maybe abnormal repair? I mean, that's a good way of thinking about it. Certainly people have proposed those models. You can read, you know, reviews in Nature Reviews Rheumatology and other places that sort of talk about that. Um, but there's also perpetuation of innate inflammatory pathways. And, you know, I think our bodies are designed to have mechanisms that turn around and shut down those pathways that are supposed to be involved in healing. And for whatever reason, those seem to fail. And that's something that we're we're trying to dissect uh, the mechanisms uh, that are underlying why that that normal inhibitory mechanism starts to fail. Some of it may be age-related. Some of it may be due to other comorbidities that people experience that increase the risk of osteoarthritis. But really, that's that's not a, a very well understood uh, set of events. Um, but but yeah, I think it's a good way to to frame it that initially you've got a bunch of inflammation and then repair doesn't seem to quite do the job. Um, but obviously, there's there's a lot of mechanisms and different cell types involved in that. I think that's really interesting because um, I, I would say, like, I, I'm not that long out of training. And the paradigm that I learned was osteoarthritis is a non-inflammatory arthritis. And when we describe it to patients, we often use the phrase, the, the phraseology of it is a wear and tear arthritis. And uh, I, I think uh, you've kind of already spoken to it. Those paradigms don't really apply anymore. Is that is that so? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. And I think, you know, words matter a lot. And and we are regarded as the as sort of the experts. And when, when patients come to talk to us, uh, when media speaks to us, you know, the words that we end up using, we're, we're choosing them most of the time, I think, because we're trying to put things into simple terms that, that everybody can identify with. But, you know, words like wear and tear actually work against us. Um, it's, it's not a wear and tear disease. You know, wear and tear is something that happens to your car tires. Um, you know, what happens in, in osteoarthritis is really that the joint isn't able to withstand the normal loads that are being put on it. And that's really because of a failure of the homeostasis of the joint. It's not wear and tear. So, you know, and, and people take that home with them. They'll, they'll say, oh, it's wear and tear. Therefore, I really shouldn't 
do so much with my joints. I should be careful with them. And we have abundant evidence from many clinical trials that show clearly there are benefits of exercise. Clearly movement is very good for our joints. And in fact, the people who are sedentary are the ones who have the most rapidly progressive disease and the people who end up with joint replacements and other complications, loss of work, disability, these sorts of things much earlier in life. So, you know, we need to be encouraging people to move and terms like wear and tear certainly work against that. So I, I think we need to push past those, those old paradigms and, and really focus on what can we do to maintain the health of your joints. And I would also tag on to that, that that doesn't just apply to osteoarthritis. You know, people develop damage in their joints from rheumatoid arthritis, from psoriatic arthritis, and the other diseases that we treat. And, you know, sustaining the health of those joints is about more than just treating the inflammation. So, Tom, I want to push you on this a little bit more because, um, I mean, I was certainly taught as well that the synovium wasn't really an important player at all. And obviously, we didn't see panis and synovial thickening, not too common when you get an end stage uh, failed joint, for sure. We're thinking cartilage and subchondral bone. So are there different types like like basically um, is is sort of an inflammatory one like erosive OA different than um, uh, someone has an injury in a sport wrecks their meniscus and is sort of doomed on that side on the meniscal side of that knee to end up with um, bony osteophytes and cysts and things that change up the whole mechanics yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, set of, uh, of phenotypes, I suppose. Um, one of the common refrains that you'll hear is osteoarthritis is a heterogeneous disease. Um, well, we're sort of a heterogeneous species, and, and I think that you can see the disease manifesting in lots of different ways. Let me go back first to the, the first thing that you said that, you know, people said, well, there isn't a whole lot. You know, I think the, the comparison between osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis has been very useful for the rheumatoid arthritis field because it's allowed us to focus very much on the adaptive immune changes that happen, and that's led to a lot of discoveries. You go back through most of the rheumatoid arthritis literature, the controls that are used in those studies are actually OA patients, not healthy controls. So, you know, I, I think that that served a very useful purpose and helped move the rheumatology field forward in some ways, but it's also pushed the OA field back a lot of ways. What we know from uh, a lot of epide well-designed epidemiologic studies done with thousands of patients in uh, large cohorts like the Osteoarthritis Initiative based in the United States, um, the Multicenter Osteoarthritis Study, um, you know, and, and other cohorts around the world is that the vast majority of patients actually do have synovitis with osteoarthritis. And that even more importantly than that, the synovitis when present is associated with worse symptoms, meaning worse pain, more intensity, and more likely to have clinically meaningful levels of pain. We know that it's associated with an increased risk of developing pain sensitization. So that sort of pain out of keeping with what you would expect around a joint. And it's even perhaps more importantly to some, the, a, a, a major risk factor for radiographic progression and a risk factor for having joint replacement. So really the presence of synovitis is a harbinger of bad things to come. And the absence of synovitis then uh, reciprocally is actually considered to be less of a severe kind of phenomenon. 
a lot of the early studies that were done though, and we're going back now 20, 30, 40 years and before that, were done in patients who had really end-stage disease. And we've shown actually fairly recently that patients with end-stage disease actually lose their synovitis. And it's not replaced by healthy, pristine tissue. It's replaced by damage, damage, damage. So, you know, inflammation begets damage regardless of what type of arthritis you're talking about. But I think the fundamental difference here is that we're talking about a different type of inflammation. We're not talking about adaptive immunity and autoimmunity here. We're talking about innate driven mechanisms, and we don't really know how to target that. We, we, we haven't yet figured out what the right nodes of that immune system are to push on to try to change outcomes. And so what the field is trying to do now is push things back to say, let's intervene earlier in this process. Don't wait until the joint is totally failed and see if we can actually make a difference. And kind of drafting off that that same question um, of inflammatory versus non-inflammatory, further to that, does it make much difference if we diagnose someone with the other kind of phenotypes of disease like nodal or chondrocalcinosis related um, or the erosive uh, inflammatory I think you've spoken to already? Are these more kind of conceptual frameworks, research uh, terms, or or are they actually clinically important um, uh, for us to know? Yeah, so I think the short answer is is the latter right now. At this point in time, in 2022, these are, are really things that need to be researched further. And I think we can say that about most types of arthritis that we treat as rheumatologists. You know, we, we think that phenotypes matter, meaning we think that those clinical phenotypes will somehow relate to an endotype. So therefore, you should have a different treatment mechanism a new biologic, a different biological mechanism that you're going to try to target because of this particular phenotype. I think that in the osteoarthritis field, the same idea persists, but we still have yet to to really show that, you know, beyond associations and cohort studies, to show that some sort of intervention for one phenotype makes a difference more so than, than in others. Um, I think the concept of disease stage matters a lot. So one of the things we talk about in clinic is, yes, are there phenotypic features here, but also what stage of disease are you at? Because your expectations are very, very different. If you've got somebody who has frequent joint symptoms and yet hasn't developed uh, radiographic damage versus somebody who has advanced radiographic damage has persistent symptoms, you know, the chances of being able to make a meaningful difference and turn things around is a lot lower. And now we're talking about things like joint replacement referrals as opposed to, you know, can we can we actually slow down or reduce this and maybe even save that that uh, uh, from progressing. So that kind of speaks, Tom, to the maybe window of opportunity. So is early diagnosis important? How do we diagnose them? And why would it be important when it seems like all these D modes that get to phase three kind of in the end don't work. Yeah, well, there's a lot, a lot of issues in in what you just said there uh, that get that that are important to address, and we we need to work through this as a field. You know, rheumatoid arthritis is so far ahead, um, and part of that is driven by the fact that that treatments were made available, and then all of a sudden that made it really important to have classification criteria you know, for for early stage rheumatoid arthritis. So actually what we're doing right now through the Osteoarthritis Research Society International, this is being led by Tina Neoji and uh, Jillian Hawker um, and uh, and several others 
who uh, are really interested in, in helping get the field a set of early stage knee osteoarthritis classification criteria. We need to have something like this to be able to have a, a population of patients that can be included in studies and can have an early window of opportunity to intervene and, 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 and improve outcomes in clinical trials. To date, that really hasn't been the model that's been used in clinical trials. Clinical trials have largely included patients with established to late stage radiographic disease and very heterogeneous in terms of symptoms, types of symptoms, different pain experiences. You know, you guys mentioned things like chondrocalcinosis and these other sorts of features that are quite heterogeneous across the population. We don't know if those are the right patients to be including in studies. So, so I agree with you, the early window of opportunity is likely our best chance of making a meaningful difference with, and when we're talking about a meaningful difference, we're talking about medical interventions here, let's be clear. There are other types of interventions, of course, but we as rheumatologists are largely wielding the medications um, that, you know, if we wanna make a difference, we're gonna have to start much earlier. You can't undo and reverse damage that's already been done. So, you know, rheumatologists, we all train as internists and then and then further subspecialize in rheumatology. And a lot of the language that we're we're using here, um, it really isn't isn't using using a lot of the tools that we use uh, in rheumatology. Does osteoarthritis really belong to rheumatology, or is it better housed under physiatry, under orthopedics, under an, a different faculty? Are we the right people to be seeing this? Well, you you, you probably want to take a, a survey of many rheumatologists <laughs> because the one that you're asking right now is exceedingly biased. Dan. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, with that with that in mind, I'll I'll, I'll make my impassioned plea. I, and I started off sort of uh, alluding to this. Yeah. You know, we are the arthritis experts. You know, and we're talking about a joint disease. The most common synovial joint disease in the world is osteoarthritis. And so, you know, in terms of a pathognomonic disease that rheumatology should own, um, you know, it would be osteoarthritis. It just so happened that the, the first disease modifying drugs that came to be were in rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and that was really important. And thank goodness we have that. And I love that aspect of being a, a practicing rheumatologist. We make such an important difference for people. But, you know, osteoarthritis is also a synovial joint disease. And, and so, you know, I think we really should be the ones owning this from the standpoint of researching it and from the standpoint of really helping out with the complex cases. But I also am really quick to point out that we are not capable as a, as a workforce of handling the volume uh, of disease. So I think we need to develop the tools to adequately manage this and then empower primary care and the other uh, specialists and, and groups out there who can handle this volume uh, of patients to really, you know, do the first line, second line, even third line management. And then if we get into more complicated cases, then maybe that ends up coming to rheumatology. But, you know, it's, it's really been owned largely by orthopedics for, for the majority of time. And, you know, that is, I mean, what a miracle joint replacement has been. Uh, for sure, especially if you have hip osteoarthritis. Um, also, if you have knee osteoarthritis, less so if you have any other uh, joints involved, and there's many polyarticular forms of this disease. Um, you know, but that's really only for end-stage disease. 
It's really only for the time when you've lived with it for 10, 20, 40 years and you've developed complete joint failure. You know, and P.S., after a joint is replaced, it's not perfect. You know, people continue to have symptoms. One in five people aren't satisfied with the outcome. Thankfully, 80%, four out of five are and, and do quite well. Um, but that's a long time to live with this. And so, you know, there's a huge gap. There's a huge unmet need. And I think rheumatology is in the best spot to be able to help fill that gap, not necessarily to manage it, manage it all, but certainly to, 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 to lead in terms of discovery. That's really helpful. Uh, Tom, people ask me, particularly lay people and med students as well, um, why, why this pattern? Why these joints? So why is it that, you know, second and third MCPs, sometimes I guess we use them more than any other MCPs, but that it's mostly PIP, DIP, first CMC, and someone else, it's a hip, someone else, it's hips, knees, and even shoulders. Um, is there a sense, is it a, a phenotype that might be genetic? We know, we know, again, like occupationally, if you're a pitcher for playing baseball, you're more apt to wreck your shoulder and get secondary OA or primary OA there. But do, do you know more from the lab perspective of why even in animal studies, um, certain joints have a predilection? Yeah, I, I think I don't think there's a clear answer to that, but I, I do uh, see clinically that you know certain patterns are more likely to be associated with secondary forms of osteoarthritis. So you know a classic one would and there's not a ton of these, but hemochromatosis, for example, you know would be would be one. You know you almost never see elbow involvement unless somebody's had an elbow fracture, but you can see it in patients with acromegaly. You know so when you've got atypical joints that are involved, think secondary forms of osteoarthritis. Now treating the underlying cause of the secondary osteoarthritis isn't going to reverse what's there but it may prevent more joint involvement as time goes on. And so, you know, obviously those, those things need to be referred to the appropriate specialists. Um, as for why some joints are more predisposed to osteoarthritis development than others, I think probably the best research that's been done on this really comes down to joint shape. So uh, maybe a better example is, um, is the CMC joint. So the CMC, which is by far the most common joint uh, involved in the hand, um, and certainly with symptomatic, you know, lots of people have bony nodes and DIPs and stuff like that, but in terms of really symptomatic OA, CMC is, is, is sort of the big one. It's a saddle joint, and it kind of slides in a funny uh, motion, and so the biomechanics of that joint and the shape of that joint and the contact mechanics there are, are really atypical and probably not the best designed to be able to withstand a lifetime's worth of activity. Um, a similar one or similar concept where there's lots of uh, research as well is, is in the hip. And, you know, we see people with congenital hip dysplasias developing hip osteoarthritis 20, 30 years before other people would be more uh, likely to from, from a primary form of hip osteoarthritis. Uh, but even certain hip shapes, there's a, some really nice studies that have been done uh, with uh, with CT modeling and looking at the shape of hips, you can sort of break them down into about four different hip shapes. And, and one of them is particularly protective and one is particularly high risk for developing osteoarthritis. So, you know, I think that goes back to the mechanics. But again, 
those shapes or those sorts of actions that a, a joint will go through in a lifetime predispose, but there must be something else that's also going on that says, okay, this joint actually isn't able to withstand this amount of loading because there are lots of people around who have these these joints and go through lots of loading in their life and they don't develop osteoarthritis as well. So the, it's, it is a multi-hit kind of disease. So in other words, who knows, but some of these things biomechanically make a lot of sense, right? <laughs> um, can, yeah. can I ask just a couple rapid fires of good or bad? Sure. Um, so for clinical pearls, for the listeners, um, I guess uh, a warm effusion, bad. Bad. <laughs> bad, okay. What about male versus female? Which one? Well, and that, so that's interesting. So, so males tend to have more aggressive inflammation interestingly, but women tend to have worse outcomes. And that's not an OA thing. That's an almost all diseases thing. We, we see that women have slightly less response to biologic interventions in rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis across the board. Uh, women tend to experience more pain as well. So female sex is associated with worse outcomes almost in general, but osteoarthritis 1.4 times more likely if you're female to develop osteoarthritis and uh, and and certainly you know worse outcomes as well. So um, so female, I guess bad, but I don't want to say that. Right. I don't want to say it in that way, yeah. Janet. So. Yeah. No, I know. That, that, that'll be that's going to be yeah. the you know sound, what I mean. Yeah. That's going to be the sound yeah, we'll, clip at the start of the we'll show. Cut that. We'll that's cut that. That's right. Yeah. Um, hip hip versus knee. Like my impression is that hips uh, wreck far more quickly. I don't know why, but hip versus knee. Am I wrong? There? Yeah, so I mean, much more common to have knee osteoarthritis, but hip osteoarthritis, really debilitating and really severe, but also the best outcomes by far from joint replacement. Okay, age. Much better than knees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, be, I believe it. I believe that what you're telling me. Age, young versus old versus really old. Yeah, so the age, I, I can't give yes or no to these, Janet. I know you can't, um, so, but it's pearls to help us. <laughs> yeah, so age is a risk factor, of course, but I think we can't pass that one by without pointing out that the most common age of symptom onset in osteoarthritis is between ages 35 and 50. And this comes from the Global Burden of Disease study done by the ongoing for many decades by the World Health Organization clearly shows a tapering off of new onset symptoms in patients with hip and knee osteoarthritis after age 60. So yes, statistically, the, you know, if the older you are, the more likely there are. So there's higher prevalence in the population with increasing age, but the age of onset is much earlier. So people live with it through their working years and people have early stage disease when they're younger. So this is the window of intervention. Okay, final thing is back, really, like degenerative discs, that grab bag turn is it term. Is that OA? So again, OA is a synovial joint disease. So if you're talking about facet disease, then yes, that would be considered osteoarthritis. But degenerative disc disease, which is, by the way, a much larger field of research now, and I have colleagues here at the university, including Cheryl Sagan and Michelle Battier and others who are really spine researchers pushing this forward, they would agree that it's not osteoarthritis. It is a totally different joint. You've got a fibrous joint uh, at the disc. And, uh, and, and so there are similarities there in terms of some of the biology, but it is definitely considered a different disease if you're talking about degenerative disc. So we've, we've talked about what OA is. We've talked about who, who it belongs to. 
we've gotten some of your clinical pearls and um, we, we somehow have not yet touched on how do you actually diagnose it? And I want to make sure I get really like an expert's uh, impression on how do I actually do it in clinic? How should I diagnose OA? Yeah. So, you know, we are clinicians first, right? So we are rheumatologists. We know lots about joint disease. So this is a disease also that is diagnosed clinically. So you, first of all, need to have symptoms. And typical symptoms in osteoarthritis can be pain in or around the joint, typically on most days. And it's very frequently intermittent. So people will experience symptoms often with activity that gets better with rest. Um, and it can be there sometimes and then maybe go for a few weeks and actually do pretty well, but it will come back again and it's cyclical. And so that kind of a history in the absence of another explanation. So, you know, a clear joint injury, uh, somebody who had a tendon tear or something like that, you know, those sorts of things need to be ruled out. Um, that patient can be diagnosed as having osteoarthritis and trainees, others are often really surprised we're not ordering x-rays. You know, why Why don't we need the x-ray? Well, you know, x-rays are frequently read as having OA, but really what the x-ray is showing are consequences of having OA. They're showing features of damage. So if it's a knee x-ray, you're talking about joint space narrowing, meaning meniscal damage and cartilage loss and those sorts of things. Those are signs of joint damage and progression. So the disease having been there long enough to result in complications um, you don't need to have those features to diagnose osteoarthritis. So the typical symptoms in a patient who's had other things ruled out, and also important to rule out other things like CPPD, uh, rule out other things like rheumatoid arthritis and, and other, other joint diseases and other periarticular problems, um, you can call that person as having osteoarthritis. That is very fascinating because I think my instinct is to um, allow the radiologist to give me the diagnosis as opposed to the other way around where you make the diagnosis and if the x-ray happens to show it that's supportive but not necessary um so that that's actually really quite helpful and we'd break the bank if we did x-rays on every oa patient and don't order mris right so that's that's the other thing you do not need an mri to diagnose any of these things you know if you're you've got a strong suspicion of something like a uh, you know, a sonk or, or other, you know, AVN or something like that, then sure, okay, maybe you need advanced imaging to, to rule these things out. But for the vast majority of people coming in, you don't need the imaging. I will say x-rays are useful, though, for staging. And so that's kind of circling back to the discussion before about, you know, where is this patient at in their journey? Many times patients are not referred to rheumatology until they're, you know, sort of too far along. Um, and, and so, you, you know, you unfortunately uncover a lot of radiographic damage. Um, it would be great if we had interventions that, you know, could be used to, to sort of reverse that or stop that in, in its tracks. But we should be picking this up earlier and, and intervening with the first line kind of things. So I think that sets us up beautifully for our next episode, which is on the treatment of OA. And we'll, we'll talk to you all in that conversation. Thanks to you both. That's it for this episode of Around the Room. For questions, comments, and future episode ideas, email us at info at room.ca or tag our Twitter account with your question at C-R-A-S-C-R Room. Around the Room is produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, and Kevin Bagenoth. 
We'd like to give a special thanks to the communications committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. And of course, an extra special thanks to Dr. Tom Appleton and Dr. Janet Pope. Our theme music was composed by Aaron Fontwell. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening.